Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey gang, Brian Allen with EM Guidewire bringing you our first episode of the deep dive into sepsis that we're embarking on for Sepsis Awareness Month. Get ready to learn all about sepsis epidemiology, definitions, and more with our EM Guidewire team. Here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Core Concepts with the EM Guidewire team from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio in Charlotte, North Carolina. This month we're doing a special series on sepsis, and we're doing that because September is Sepsis Awareness Month. We decided to celebrate by bringing to you a multi-part series. We're going to break down what sepsis is, how we should treat it, special considerations in different populations, and how we guide fluid resuscitation in the emergency department. So today we've got with us me, Sean Murray, PGY3. And I'm Alyssa Thomas, PGY2. Mark Kastner, PGY1. Today's podcast is brought to you by Sepsis. The only thing with more guidelines than a protractor, sepsis. All right, guys. So today we are breaking down the definitions, pathophysiology, and epidemiology of sepsis. So let's begin with some definitions. Sepsis is basically a dysregulated inflammatory response to infection. Okay, the end. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Nice try. But I think it is definitely more complicated than that. I always hear about SIRS versus sepsis versus septic shock. Shouldn't we talk about all those? Good point. I tried to get out of explaining that, but you caught me. So previously, there were four categories, SIRS, sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. But now there are only two categories, sepsis and septic shock. Exactly. SIRS is really nonspecific. It stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. Somebody had sepsis if they had SIRS plus an identifiable infectious source. If that septic patient had evidence of end organ dysfunction like renal failure, then the proper term was severe sepsis. And lastly, if that same patient had persistent hypotension, the correct term would be septic shock. Oh, so now I see why there's only two categories. Yep. I don't know about you, but my brain can only keep up with so much. So just remember, sepsis and septic shock. Sepsis encompasses SIRS, a suspected source, and N-organ damage. And also remember that septic shock is a distributive shock due to infection and dysregulated response. In this case, shock is referring to hypotension. A person is in septic shock when their blood pressure remains low, defined as a systolic blood pressure less than 90 and or a MAP less than 65 despite adequate fluid resuscitation, or if the lactate is greater than 2 millimoles per liter after adequate fluid resuscitation. So just as an example to really solidify the definitions of sepsis versus septic shock, if there's a patient with a UTI, fever, tachycardia, and a new acute kidney injury with a normal blood pressure and a normal lactate, then that patient has sepsis. But if that same patient has hypotension despite receiving enough IV fluids, then the patient has septic shock. That's right. So now let's review some of the technicalities that qualify as tachycardia, fever, etc. to know if a patient actually has SIRS. Okay, Dr. Thomas. So this just keeps getting more complicated just as I thought it was getting easier. Oh, it is a lot easier than many people realize because it is all quite intuitive. I agree. The most important thing is the patient that's in front of us in the overall clinical picture. But to get into the nitty-gritty, we're going to talk about both SIRS and QSOFA. We need a sound effect here that signals a debate. 
Here we go. The SIRS versus QSOFA debate. There is never just one smart person in medicine that we all can follow. Everyone just has to come up with new criteria, guidelines, and algorithms. Uh, guys, can you please fill me in? So basically, SIRS and QSOFA are both two different criteria that we use to identify a patient who might have an infection. For example, if a patient has these certain vital signs or symptoms from this criteria, then you should consider an infection. Oh, I remember this. SIRS was defined as a temperature of 100.4 degrees or less than 96.8 degrees, a heart rate greater than 90 beats per minute, a respiratory rate of greater than 20, and a white blood cell count of either less than 4,000 or greater than 12,000. Yep, exactly. And great job at remembering lower temperatures in the lower white blood cells because those are frequently overlooked. So you need two out of these four criteria to qualify. So somebody who has fever and tachycardia or fever and leukocytosis, then that patient meets SIRS criteria. Well, this is great and all, but I feel like a patient with anxiety could meet these same criteria. I mean, I'm pretty sure I met this criteria at one point listening to all of these definitions. You are exactly right. This criteria is very nonspecific, and many patients not septic would fit this criteria. Therefore, it is important to use clinical judgment when applying it. Well, is QSOFA any better? I mean, I can't even remember what that one was. Well, I at least know what QSOFA stands for. It's Quick Sequential Organ Failure Assessment. Ooh, fancy. I know, right? I actually don't think I knew that until recently. So QSOFA is another scoring system with a max score of 3. You get a point for a respiratory rate that's greater than or equal to 22, evidence of altered mental status, or a blood pressure that's less than or equal to 100. And if your patient has two or more points, then he or she is at risk of poor outcomes. This was developed by the 2016 SCCM Task Force, and it was initially studied in populations outside of the ICU to actually predict prognosis, not to diagnose, and pregnant patients were excluded. So which one should people be using, guys? QSOFA or SIRS? So this is a really complicated question to answer. SIRS has a higher sensitivity compared to QSOFA at 88% versus 61% for QSOFA. On the other hand, QSOFA is more specific. It's 72% versus 26% only for SIRS. As with many things in medicine, combining the decision-making tools with the patient in front of us and their overall clinical picture is probably the best approach to increase both our sensitivity and our specificity. Okay, so I'm a simple guy here and I like to keep things simple. If a patient has abnormal vital signs, altered mental status, and any clinical story concerning for an infection, then just consider sepsis. See, Mark, I told you this was easy. Now that we have mastered the definitions, let's briefly overview some pathophysiology next. So we could really get into this, but our focus here is going to be to talk about the big picture and not get stuck in the weeds. I completely agree. So we will just review briefly the body's normal response to infection and then the dysregulated response to infection. I'll begin with the normal response. The body should react locally to infections. We have an innate immune response that gets turned on when there's an infection. The macrophages, along with other white blood cells, get woken up and start attacking the infection. Do you guys remember those terrible pattern recognition receptors located on the white blood cells and the pathogen-associated molecular patterns on the bacteria that we learned about way back in medical school or for me just a couple months ago? Pattern recognition what? Yeah, that's a hard pass for me. Yeah, me neither. Basically, receptors on our body's white cells react to stuff located outside of the microorganism or evidence of injury, which makes our body mad and it attacks back. So the key thing to know here is that this attack is supposed to be all local. Exactly. 
there's a careful balance of pro-inflammatory mediators and anti-inflammatory mediators. This local regulated attack is the opposite of what happens in a dysregulated septic response. In this situation, the response is no longer local due to excessive release of pro-inflammatory mediators, which causes uncontrolled, unregulated intravascular inflammation. There will be an overload of molecules such as TNF-alpha, interleukin-1, endotoxins, and the whole complement cascade. There's at least three possible mechanisms to explain the systemic effects that occur. The first one is tissue ischemia. Due to the overwhelming inflammatory response, the oxygen demand of the tissue exceeds the oxygen supply. A second school of thought is that this is due to cytopathic injury. These pro-inflammatory chemicals can cause direct injury to mitochondria. And the last possible mechanism involving apoptosis, the thought is that there's actually a decreased rate of programmed cell death. This actually sounds good at first because you have less death, which means more cells. But in this case, it is like the more old cells we come across, the more problems we see. What is that? Oh, okay. No one knows that song? Never mind. But basically, keeping around all those old used-up cells that cause more inflammation, that are more inefficient at killing bacteria, is not ideal for the body when you are trying to fight off infection. So in a nutshell, sepsis occurs because the body's immune response has become dysregulated, causing an excessive release of inflammatory mediators that do whatever they want, using up all the oxygen, causing ischemia, and hanging around, making it difficult for healthy cells to do their job properly. We've actually got a couple of patients who do the same thing in the emergency department. That's why I love our job. (laughs) Yep. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Mark. So now that we have reviewed definitions and pathophysiology, let's talk numbers. Sepsis is a huge problem. It is estimated to be 164,000 cases annually in the United States alone, with about 6% of all hospital admissions, hence why we're doing all these talks. This is going to be even more common in patients that are immunosuppressed, those that are obese, and patients that have diabetes. Oh, Sean, and uh, don't forget that there's increased rates in the winter, my favorite season. You're absolutely right about that. The risk of developing sepsis also goes up as you get older. That is for sure, because 60 to 85% of all admissions for sepsis are in patients 65 years and older. But check this out. I found this really interesting. So many people are getting admitted for sepsis, and we talk all about identifying a source, etc. But unfortunately, when it comes to causative organisms, 50% of cases never have an identified source. Although, when a source is identified, the leading cause is bacteria. Gram-positive being the most common, followed by gram-negative bacteria. Fungal sepsis is more rare, although increases in prevalence amongst the more immunocompromised patients we see. It's difficult to assess the prevalence of viral illnesses as they're not routinely screened. So, did we just woo bacteria? We did. All right. Anyway... So we've talked a lot about how common sepsis is, but how important is it to recognize sepsis and treat it? What about prognosis? So for sepsis, the mortality is estimated to be 10% or greater. If we divide the rates amongst age, we'll see that there's higher rates in the older, less healthy populations with increased amounts of comorbidities. And for septic shock, the mortality is as high as 40% or greater. Additionally, after being treated, patients are not completely in the clear. The risk of death remains elevated for two years after the septic episode and can be as high as 20%. The patients also have an increased risk for readmission to the hospital. Well, that was a super happy way to end the discussion. Good thing next week's episode will discuss things proven to improve mortality, like early administration of antibiotics and early adequate fluid resuscitation. Yes. Thank you all for joining us this week as we learned a little about the definition, pathophysiology, and epidemiology of sepsis. We know this isn't the sexiest part of sepsis, but it is fundamental to building our understanding of this disease. 
All right, guys, ready to review our take-home points? Let's do it. The definition of sepsis is dysregulation of the inflammatory response that we have to infection. We only use the term sepsis and septic shock. We can still use the SERS criteria in QSOFA to help diagnose. Keep in mind, we need to do more research to determine if these are adequate to diagnose sepsis by themselves. The most important thing is the patient that's in front of you in the overall clinical picture. And as for the pathophysiology of sepsis, it is defined as a systemic spread of localized inflammation with dysregulation causing tissue ischemia, cytotoxic injury, and altered apoptosis. Sepsis is most commonly seen in the elderly patients with comorbidities, including immunosuppression, diabetes, and obesity. It's also seen at higher rates in my favorite season. What's that? Winter. Winter. I'm so excited (laughs) for winter. Surprisingly, up to 50% of these cases never have an identified source. And those that do have one, bacterial sources are the most common. Mortality is approximately 10% in sepsis and 40% in septic shock. Thank you all again, and join us next week as we talk more about those factors that improve mortality and the other early goal-directed therapies. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio in Charlotte, North Carolina, and from the residents and faculty of the Carolinas Medical Center Emergency Department Residency, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! Seems he out. You're just trying to spit a track while you're here. Okay, no, let me put it on YouTube. Lay down some bars, Dr. Thomas. Keep singing it, keep singing it. Holy moly, my brain is broken. (laughs) Anyway, when we're talking, we've talked a (laughs) lot. That was a snort. (laughs) Keep it in there.